Thousands of nurses are on strike today at two of the biggest hospitals in New York City. The job action has disrupted patient care, but nurses say they will not return until they get a fair contract. Our story is coming up on this Monday, the 9th of January. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, yesterday's riot by supporters of Brazil's former president. It has parallels with the attacks on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, but it's also part of a global far-right movement opposed to democracy. And Britain's Prince Harry in the spotlight this week. He's talking about his marriage, tensions within the royal family, and his reaction to the death of his mother, Princess Diana. I just refused to accept that she was gone. Part of, you know, she would never do this to us, but also part of maybe this is all part of a plan. These stories and more coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Now that a week-long stalemate over the election of a House Speaker is over, members of the 118th Congress are expected to get to work NPR's Robert Sprint reports a top priority is passage of a rules package. Any other time that would be routine, but after the highly unusual standoff that forced Republican Kevin McCarthy to make concessions to GOP opponents, new rules governing the U.S. House is top of mind. In exchange for getting the necessary votes from a hard right group of holdouts, now Speaker McCarthy agreed to various rules changes, including a concession that allows just one lawmaker to offer a resolution to oust the Speaker. Some other changes, like giving 72 hours to read bills before votes, are widely supported by House Republicans. But some moderate members aren't a solid yes vote yet on the package over concerns that slashing discretionary spending could hurt the Pentagon. Republicans have just a four-seat majority, so McCarthy can't afford more than a few defections. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, Washington. The president of Mexico is giving full-throated support of American immigration policies. NPR's Ada Peralta reports amid a North American leaders' summit the two countries are presenting an image of unity. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador said that he and President Biden had a pleasant talk Sunday night. During a morning press conference, López Obrador vehemently defended U.S. plans to quickly expel any Cubans, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans, or Haitians who crossed the border seeking asylum without first getting permission. López Obrador said President Biden has Mexico's full support, especially, he said, because Biden is pushing policy sees unpopular with what López Obrador termed a right-wing Congress. En el Congreso de Estados Unidos, con todo respeto, the Congress, he says, budgets money for war. Instead, he says, they should send money to Latin American countries in crisis. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. NFL player Damar Hamlin's back home in Buffalo, marking a remarkable comeback from a near-fatal tackle during a Bills-Bengals game one week ago. University of Cincinnati Medical Center transferred Hamlin this morning to an unnamed hospital in Buffalo. One of the physicians who treated the bill's safety, Dr. William Knight, told reporters today that Hamlin has met some key milestones in his journey to recovery. Dr. Pritz and I have spoken extensively with his care team in Buffalo, and I can confirm that he is doing well, and this is the beginning of the next stage of his recovery. During last Monday night's game between the Bills and Cincinnati Bengals, Hamlin made a tackle, got to his feet, then crumpled to the ground. The 24-year-old suffered cardiac arrest. CPR was administered. The terrifying ordeal unfolded in front of players, spectators, in the stands, and millions more at home. 
At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was down 112 points at 33,517. It's NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Interim Suffolk County District Attorney Kevin Hayden will drop the interim from his title today. He'll be sworn in for his first full elected term later this hour. Last year, then-Governor Charlie Baker appointed Hayden to replace Rachel Rollins when she became the U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts. Last fall, Hayden won the election for the job against Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo. UMass Boston and Chelsea Public Schools have reinstituted a mandatory mask policy for students and staff. But as WBR's Carrie Young reports, education watchers expect few other schools to implement mandates for face coverings, despite an ongoing surge in COVID numbers. UMass Boston says its decision came after the CDC raised Suffolk County's COVID community risk level from medium to high. Chelsea Public Schools also relied on that metric. School committee member Roberto Jimenez Rivera says those voicing opposition are mostly from outside the school community. It is a lot of pushback, I think, from folks who have been advocating against mask mandates across the state. We're also not getting a huge cry out for we need to mask uh, from our community either. Still, leaders with the Massachusetts Association of School Committees says it's unlikely that a large number of other districts will follow suit with mask mandates. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Cambridge-based biotech company Editas is slashing its workforce by about 20 percent. The cuts come as Editas abandons its work on drugs that treat tumors and eye diseases. The company will now focus on medications that aim to combat sickle cell anemia and other blood disorders. It says it wants to pursue treatments that have the greatest possibility of commercial and regulatory success. And Patriots owner Robert Kraft says he is not happy with the season the team's had. The Pats lost yesterday to finish the season 8-9, and nine, missing the playoffs. In a letter sent to season ticket holders today, Kraft wrote, Our expectation was to perform better throughout the season and advance through the playoffs. Kraft goes on to say in the weeks ahead, the Pats will make critical evaluations of all football operations as they strive to return to the playoffs next year. Earlier today, head coach Bill Belichick said he hopes to return next year for his 24th season with the Pats. In the forecast, mighty fine winter day today coming to a close. Clear skies tonight, a cold wind down around 29. Tomorrow, mostly sunny once again in the upper 30s for a high. This is WBUR. It's 406. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In scenes eerily reminiscent of January 6th, thousands of protesters stormed Brazil's Capitol buildings this past weekend. The rioters were supporters of Jair Bolsonaro, the far-right former president who, like Donald Trump, falsely claimed that the election that ousted him was rigged. This weekend's attacks were also part of a broader pattern of transnational extremism, one where social media and a shared sense of grievance are playing big roles. For more on that, we are joined by NPR's Sergio Olmos, who covers extremism, and Shannon Bond, who covers how false claims spread online. Hi there. Welcome to you both. Hey. Hi, Mary Louise. Sergio, you first. As I watched the videos streaming in from Brazil over the weekend, they were so reminiscent of what we saw here in Washington on January 6th. Are they, in fact, linked, part of some kind of broader movement? Yeah, in many ways, it is part of a broader movement. 
far right movements globally are taking inspiration from each other. So even though this was in Brazil, we saw some of the figures connected to the January 6th insurrection cheering this on. Uh, the founder of the Stop the Steal movement, Ali Alexander, posted his support. He said that the Brazilian Supreme Court was illegitimate, saying, quote, do whatever is necessary. Uh, Steve Bannon on his podcast since October has been hosting guests who've been promoting election fraud conspiracies. On Sunday, he called the people that stormed Congress there, quote, Brazilian freedom fighters. Steve Bannon, uh, former President Trump's former advisor. Go on. Yeah, that's right. And it, it shows how the far right is an anti-democratic movement and it's transnational. What we saw on January 6th in the U.S. and Sunday in Brazil uh, was not an anomaly, but part of a part of trend. Uh, these movements are sharing thoughts, ideas, strategies, and they're taking inspiration from each other. Well, and how deep does it go? Is it a two-way street in terms of far-right figures in the U.S. actively engaging with what's happening in Brazil? Yeah. So the far right hasn't necessarily developed an interest in Brazilian politics or necessarily care what happens there. Their interest is in the breakup of a globalized community. Uh, for that, I talked to Sergio Guzman, who monitors political climates in Latin America. He says these far right movements share a common goal in undermining democracy. Uh, let's listen in. They don't like organizations that express a common good or a common sense of what a democracy is and how it should behave. And so in a way, these groups find kindred spirits uh, in other countries who want the same objectives as them, which is to leave them alone. Shannon Bond, jump in here, because I have been so curious about the role of social media in the Sunday attack in Brazil. What do we know? Yeah, I mean, again, very much like we saw on January 6th, you know, these events, these riots were stoked and then documented on social media in messaging apps like Telegram and WhatsApp, which are very popular in Brazil, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok. You know, we initially saw people urging others to come to the Capitol and then spreading videos of the chaos as it unfolded. And what I found really interesting, Mary Louise, is so much of this organizing appeared to happen quite openly. Um, we saw this term Selma's party in Portuguese going around. That was apparently an attempt to evade detection by the companies and authorities. Selma is a play on the word selva, which is a term associated with Brazil's military. Huh. The Brazilian fact-checking group, group Lupa commissioned a survey of public WhatsApp groups about Brazilian politics. They found that expression first emerged in late December and then peaked last week. You know, we saw other ways they were trying to evade detection, posts talking about making cake for a party, as well as offers of free rides to Brasilia and promises of free food, free water. And that clearly mobilized many people to act on Sunday. Okay, so efforts among people posting to evade detection. On the other hand, you just said they were they were pretty open about all the yeah. planning. So is it is it surprising that authorities seem to have been caught by surprise? I mean, look, the alarm bells have been ringing. Researchers and observers have been warning something like this could happen, you know, well before the presidential election in October. You know, as you said, during Bolsonaro's campaign, he claimed election fraud was likely. That was amplified by far-right influencers in Brazil and, as Sergio mentioned, election deniers here in the U.S. who have explicitly evoked stop the steal. And those messages spread like wildfire on social media, even though Brazil's government has tried to crack down on false election claims and and, you know, has the power to force social networks to take down posts, to ban election deniers. In fact, on Sunday night, Brazil's Supreme Court issued an order calling on the social networks to block 17 accounts they say were linked to these attacks. Hmm. OK, so that's what Brazil and its Supreme Court are doing. What about the social networks themselves? How are they responding to what happened over the weekend? 
Well, I reached out YouTube, Twitter, and Meta, which owns Facebook and WhatsApp. They say they're removing content that breaks their rules, including against inciting violence and praising the riots. Meta and Twitter also say they are in touch with Brazilian authorities about their investigations. On the other hand, Telegram and TikTok didn't respond to my questions. And so I think there's a lot of, you know, a lack of clarity we have on just what exactly the companies are doing and how effective it is. Okay. I have a question, I guess, to both of you, because as we know, concerns about global anti-democratic movements are not new, have been around a long time. I wonder whether you believe what we're seeing now marks an escalation. And if so, what, what are the larger lessons that you're taking away so far? Shannon, you start. Yeah, I mean, I think you know through the lens of seeing how social media is just so inextricably linked to these events, whether it's January 6th here in the US or, or what's happened in Brazil, you know, I think these companies face a challenge. And one of the challenges is how much these posts and videos and calls to violence spread across platforms. They are not limited to one place, right? So Telegram posts get shared into WhatsApp. They get shared to Facebook. TikTok videos wind up on Twitter. And of course, then there is the mainstream media as well that plays a role. And it all creates a cycle of amplification that is very hard for any single company to tackle. And to me, that shows that there are real limits of what you know we can expect from Silicon Valley when what we're really dealing with is this political movement, you know, that does not accept a candidate's loss. That is, as, as Sergio says, fundamentally anti-democratic and rooted in extremism. Sergio. Yeah, I totally agree with Shannon. She this isn't is larger than just social media moderation or even individual figures like Donald Trump or Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, the the term far right extremism itself conveys perhaps an idea that this is just one end of the bell curve and will return to the mean that what we saw on January 6th or Sunday in Brazil was perhaps a flash in the pan of people briefly radicalized by looking at Facebook too often. But that's not what we're seeing. Uh, just last month in Europe, Germany, for example, had their largest anti-terror crackdown in history involving a far-right group plotting to storm their par the parliament there. It shows that democracies everywhere are in a kind of existential crisis, each of them grappling individually with their own far-right movements that are fundamentally anti-democratic. And Pierre Sergio almost. Thank you. Thank you. And Shannon Bond, thanks to you too. You bet. Thousands of nurses began striking today at two of New York City's biggest hospitals, Montefiore Medical Center and Mount Sinai Hospital. The strikes have already disrupted patient care, but nurses say they won't return to work until they get a fair contract. We're now going to speak with Caroline Lewis, a healthcare reporter at WNYC. Hi, Caroline. Hi. So, Caroline, what are nurses at these hospitals fighting for? Um, well, you know, pay increases and health benefits are both on the table. But the biggest sticking point here and what nurses say is most important is better staffing. Um, so both of these hospitals are offering salary increases of nearly 20% over three years. And that's similar to what other New York City hospitals have offered um, that have managed to reach contract deals and avoid a strike in recent days. Um, but the nurses union says that these remaining hospitals have so far refused to commit to the concrete nurse to patient staffing ratios that they're asking for. Um, and so that's really what's holding up these talks. So these staffing issues that we're talking about here, are they new? Or are these a consequence of the pandemic or are these existing issues? 
Well, I think understaffing has been a chronic issue at some hospitals, and nurses have long talked about how that can endanger patient care. Um, but these challenges have definitely been exacerbated by the pandemic. A lot of nurses have left the profession altogether or have left their hospitals in favor of more lucrative travel or temporary nursing positions. And hospitals now have to compete with those wages when they're trying to recruit and retain permanent nurses. Um, and they're, you you know, as it stands, there's currently hundreds of unfilled nursing positions at both Montefiore and Mount Sinai. When I hear you say hundreds of unfilled nursing positions, it makes me wonder how patient care has been impacted by these strikes. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, you know, both of these hospitals, um, you know, are bringing in temporary workers during the strikes, which, you know, can be very expensive. Um, but there's still a big disruption to patient care. You know, both of these hospitals um, began postponing elective surgeries um, in the days leading up to the strikes and began discharging as many patients as they could or, you know, transferring patients. Um, Mount Sinai uh, said that it was transferring its uh, neonatal intensive care unit, you know, patients to so like newborns to other facilities to keep them safe. Montefiore said it was rescheduling outpatient visits. Um, so, you know, there there is a big disruption. And the city has said that it's working to reroute ambulances so that they take patients to other hospitals. And Caroline, where do talks stand now? Is there an end in sight? Um, well, as of midday today, uh, talks were in progress at Montefiore, but they were stalled at Mount Sinai. Um, you know, Mount Sinai had said that the nurses union left the negotiating table late last night um, and the talks still have not resumed. Um, but nurses on the picket line seemed energized. You know, they said they were sad that it had come to this, but thought it was necessary to protect patients in the long run. Healthcare reporter Caroline Lewis of WNYC. Caroline, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBR's All Things Considered, protesters in Iran vow to continue their demonstrations even as the government continues its crackdown. And Ukraine's foreign minister says his country has outperformed even its own expectations in the war with Russia. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. It was a mixed showing on Wall Street today. The Dow lost about a third of a percent, 113 points, to close at 33,518. S&P dipped a little less than a tenth of a percent to end the day at 38.92. The Nasdaq notched a second day of gains, up six-tenths of a percent, to finish at 10,636. A Boston-based insurance software company is being acquired by a private equity firm. Duck Creek Technologies is selling to Vista Equity Partners for about $2.5 billion dollars. Shares of Duck Creek soared in the wake of the news. They rose 46 percent today. It's 419. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Titus Kafar's Jerome Project, Portraits on Race, Representation, and Mass Incarceration, GardnerMuseum.org. 39 degrees now in the Boston area. We'll have a waning moon tonight. Clear skies, a little bit below freezing tonight. And for tomorrow, the sun shines back, and it should be breezy once again. About 39 degrees for a high. For Wednesday, partly sunny highs in the 30s once again. Temperatures picking up with the rain possibly coming down toward the end of the week. Again, 39 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The Iranian government carried out two executions over the weekend, prompting more international condemnations over its attempt to crush several months of anti-government protests. But as NPR's Peter Kenyon reports, Iranians are determined to be heard despite the ongoing crackdown and official attempts to cut off Internet access. The two men who were hanged this weekend took the number of known executions to four. Dozens of other people also face possible death penalties. Iran's hardline government calls the demonstrators rioters armed by Iran's enemies. Some 500 people, according to rights groups, have been killed by security forces on the streets. But protesters vow they'll go on. Like others contacted via the Internet for this story, Javad, in his 50s and from central Iran, asked that his family name not be used for fear of retribution for speaking out against the government and talking to foreign media. But he's been protesting ever since the death of a 22-year-old woman in the custody of the morality police sparked the unrest in September. He says forced by the government won't stop him. We saw that the government didn't budge at all, didn't acknowledge any of the demands. So people have gotten angrier and angrier. Although recently there are fewer street protests due to the crackdowns, in the coming year there are certainly going to be more. You can see signs of this rage in the society. Javad does see one way the protesters could strengthen their hand. He says there needs to be more of a connection between the demonstrators inside Iran and members of the large Iranian diaspora around the world, who would also love to see the government in Tehran fall. Without that cooperation, he says, quote, people will find it difficult to trust the opposition. Arman, another demonstrator who's in his 30s and from Tehran, says he wouldn't be surprised to see what he calls another explosive wave of protests, especially if the government crackdowns get worse. There is absolutely no end to the will of the government for intensifying its violence. The sole obstacle that has hindered the security forces is how widespread the protests are compared with the weakness of the crackdown machine. Many security forces refuse to beat people in their own towns and cities. So the government has to constantly move them from one city to another so they can continue to suppress protests. 
As for what world powers can or should do, Armand says the protesters ask only that they live up to their commitment to the principles of democracy and human rights. Today's world claims it has learned multiple lessons from ignoring the crimes of different dictators in the past. Those must be kept in mind and remembered when facing one of the most appalling fundamentalist dictatorships in world history, especially at a time when the world has been observing how an entirely democratic and liberal movement is fighting against them inside the country. Analyst Ali Vaez at the International Crisis Group says he sees Iran today in a similar place to where the former Soviet Union was, not in the late 1980s when it was on the verge of collapse, but in the early 1980s. Early 1980s in the sense that it's a system that is ideologically bankrupt, uh, economically broken, uh, at a political dead end as sim- and simply unable to address its problems with the same cast of characters who created uh, this deadlock to begin with. But Vyas also says, while the protesters are calling for something many Iranians would like to see, the toppling of the government, only a minority is willing to take to the streets and risk their liberty or their lives to demand it. As long as the protests don't reach what he calls critical mass, he says the regime is unlikely to fracture or lose its willingness to repress demonstrations by force. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Prince Harry is speaking out in a series of high-profile interviews to preview his new memoir. It's out tomorrow, and it is titled Spare. In an interview with CBS's 60 Minutes, which aired yesterday, Harry talked about his mother, Princess Diana, who died in a car crash in 1997. He admitted that for years he didn't believe she was actually dead. I just refused to accept that she was gone. Part of, you know, she would never do this to us, but also part of maybe this is all part of a plan. I mean, you you really believe that maybe she had just decided to disappear for a time? For a time, and then that she would call us and we would go and join her. Well, here to talk about the impact of these interviews is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Hey, Eric. Hi. All right, so tell me more about all these interviews. This is a media blitz. Who's he talking to? What's he saying? Well, there's the 60 Minutes interview with Anderson Cooper, which you heard. And he's also taped an interview with Michael Strahan, which aired on Good Morning America and is featured in a half-hour special tonight. Uh, He's also done a British TV interview, and in all of them, he's talked about why he and his wife, Meghan Markle, have become alienated from the royal family. There's strife in particular with his brother, Prince William, and how the royal family's alliance with the press led to this caustic coverage of Meghan that was both racist and it also drove a wedge between him and his brother, William. So Harry told Good Morning America that unconscious bias against Meghan, who's biracial, affected both the royal family and the press not racism, Mm -hmm. but unconscious bias, if not confronted, if not learned and grown from, that that can then move into racism. But there was an enormous missed opportunity with my wife. And Eric, he has talked before in in previous interviews about the tensions uh, between his wife and the royal family. Was there anything new here, anything we didn't already know? If you follow the royal family closely, there might not have been many surprises, but Harry provides new details on how his father, who was then Prince Charles, told him about Diana's death, how he suspects that his stepmother, Camilla, leaked stories to the press to improve her image at his expense, and this physical altercation where he says that his brother, William, attacked him while they were arguing over Meghan. Now, he was paid millions for this book, and he's got a production deal with Netflix, so there is some pressure for him to come up with some attention-getting stories. 
stories. Huh. That's interesting. Stay with that for a second, because Harry himself has talked about the concerns he has about feeding the beast of gossip coverage. With that in mind, why is there so much interest in what he's saying? Should we be so interested in this? I, I know. I mean, even a segment like this, right? I mean, I think ultimately what fascinates people about Harry and Meghan's story and TV shows like Netflix's The Crown is there's a chance to see a less filtered version of how the royal family operates. Now, Harry's interviews are remarkable in that they feature a member of the royal family doing something they almost never do, which is to speak candidly about these conflicts, trauma, and the sorrow inside the family. What has Buckingham Palace had to say about these revelations? Well, not much. I mean, Anderson Cooper said that representatives for the royal family wanted to see the 60-minute story before it was broadcast, which CBS News never does. And Michael Strahan said this morning that lawyers for Buckingham Palace asked them while they were on the air for a copy of the entire interview, which ABC News also doesn't do. So they seem to be trying to avoid looking like they're stonewalling. Big picture, what is the impact likely to be from these revelations? Well, I saw that journalist Michael Wolf said something really interesting, saying that America mostly likes what Harry and Meghan are doing because they see it as them speaking their truth, while many British people might hate it or fans of the royalty might hate it because they think the couple's being disloyal. I do think that Harry and Meghan have been able to humanize themselves a bit. And one of Harry's points is that the royal family has this alliance with newspapers where they'll refuse to comment on the record and then they secretly leak this information to push back. He says he's trying to disrupt that pattern by speaking his piece on the record in public. Well, and again, his memoir out tomorrow. That is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports, the Boston Celtics return home to the Garden tonight. The host, the Chicago Bulls, tip off is at 7.30. Marcus Smart will miss the game tonight. Salt's guard suffered a knee injury Saturday in the team's victory over the San Antonio Spurs. And Patriots linebacker coach Gerard Mayo is getting attention from other teams. Multiple media reports say the Cleveland Browns want to interview Mayo for their open defensive coordinator job. In the forecast, hang on to your hat tonight. It's likely to be windy, a little below freezing. Tomorrow, still breezy, a little chillier than today has been, down around 39 degrees. Still sunny tomorrow. Then a few clouds accompany the sunshine on Wednesday. There could be showers on Thursday. This is 90.9 WBUR. The sunset is right about now, 429. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The House is set to reconvene tonight to begin voting on a new rules package that will govern the chamber for the next two years. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports Republicans are coming to grips with the concessions that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had to make in his long and hard-fought bid to claim the gavel. 
They're saying that every member gets 72 hours to read bills before they come up for a vote, that the House will vote separately on each of the 12 spending bills, that there will be floor votes on amendments to bills. The rules changes also include this one provision that essentially gives any single lawmaker the ability to oust the speaker. That's NPR's Deidre Walsh reporting. Local governments in Ukraine are setting up thousands of emergency shelters as Russian forces continue to target key infrastructure. NPR's Tim Mack reports the centers will allow Ukrainian citizens to get out of the cold and charge their phones. The sound of a generator greets you as you approach one of the many emergency shelters in Ukraine. Inside, they have lots of essentials, providing a brief respite from the world outside. Power banks, blankets, water jugs, hot coffee and cookies. This particular shelter in the capital of Kyiv is in an igloo-shaped tent, standing in the city center. And across from the National Sports Complex, one of the largest stadiums in all of Europe. Shelters like these are a critical part of the strategy to mitigate the difficulties millions of Ukrainians are facing as the Russian military continues to target the electrical grid. Tim Mack, NPR News, Kyiv. Stocks close mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 112 points. The Nasdaq up 66. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Cambridge City officials will hold meetings with the public in response to a shooting that involved a police officer last week. Police say a Cambridge officer shot and killed 20-year-old college student Saeed Faisal in Cambridgeport. Investigators say that the student charged at the officer with a long knife and wouldn't drop the weapon. Middlesex DA Marion Ryan will attend the first meeting Thursday to talk about the investigation and answer questions. The second meeting will be a special city council session next Wednesday to talk about police training protocols and take public comment. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey has wrapped up her first meeting with state legislative leaders to talk about policy priorities. This afternoon's meeting came less than a week after Healey was sworn into office. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. Healy met for a little over an hour with House Speaker Ron Mariano and Senate President Karen Spilka. The governor said they discussed a number of topics, including workforce, health care, the climate, and education, including her call to make community college free for anyone over the age of 25. And I think the work now begins with our teams as we've made it through what was a really terrific inauguration week. We'll begin the work of sitting down together with our teams to, to flesh out more details and to see what we can arrive at as we as we move forward in the coming months with respect to community college and education and issues generally. Spilka has called free community college a priority. Speaker Mariano was noncommittal to the idea, noting the devil is in the details. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Governor Healy and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll will let Massachusetts students decide which portraits of former governors hang in their prospective offices. Uh, each leader traditionally chooses one photo to display. That choice is usually a personal one, but Healy and Driscoll say they want the state's future leaders to have a voice in the symbols and messages that they highlight. So they're asking students to write an essay of 600 words or less about which governor inspires them the most. Submissions are due by January 27th. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com.
Boston Celtics return to the Garden tonight to host the Bulls. 7.30 start time. The Bruins are off until Thursday when they're back at the Garden. Should be clear and breezy overnight tonight, down around 27 degrees. Tomorrow, 39 for a high. More sunshine due in. Wednesday, sunshine with a few clouds moving in, right about 38 degrees for a high. Cloudy and possibly damp weather moves in on Thursday. 39 degrees now. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In Ukraine, the weekend came and went, along with Vladimir Putin's self-proclaimed ceasefire, except there were, in fact, no signs of a ceasefire. Instead, both Russia and Ukraine accused the other of continuing to launch attacks. Ukraine had never agreed to the ceasefire, arguing it was just a Russian excuse to regroup. So where do things go from here, both on the battlefield and on the diplomatic front. Well, I want to bring in the man in charge of Ukraine's diplomacy. That would be Foreign Minister Dmitry Kaleba. He's in Kyiv. Foreign Minister, good to speak with you again. Happy New Year. Thank you. Let's begin with this ceasefire that did not, in fact, happen. On the contrary, Russia is claiming they killed 600 Ukrainian soldiers over the weekend in an attack on Kramatorsk. I know your government is denying this, says there were no casualties. Is that right? Well, these are two big Russian lies. Uh, the one on the ceasefire uh, working. It's not only the government of Ukraine who rejects uh, this allegation. It's also the international media present on the ground in Kramatorsk who immediately went to the places where allegedly Russian missiles hit dormitories with Ukrainian soldiers and it didn't happen. Few soldiers did not die. So they just want another evidence that you should never trust what the Russians are saying. I wonder if Vladimir Putin's strategy is becoming more clear to you. I'm remembering the first time I interviewed you, it was a year ago, and there were more than 100,000 Russian troops lined up on your border. They had not yet crossed at that point. But I remember discussing with you that Putin was good at keeping his options open, that maybe he didn't even quite know what his next move might be. Do you think that is still true? Oh, I think we were, we miscalculated him by the time He was uh, pulling all this army uh, to the border of Ukraine. Deep inside, he made a decision that he was going to invade and he was setting the stage for this invasion. But, you know, we are looking back at this situation and now we can understand the sequence and the logic of his actions. Things were not as clear as they look now, back when you and I were uh, sitting down in Kiev and talking. Mm. If I look at the battlefield, uh, at the situation now, I think that Putin doesn't have too many options. In fact, I think he has only one option, but he doesn't want to accept it. And that option is losing the war. The difficulty and the tragedy of this moment is that he is not willing to face the truth and to seek the way out. Instead, he's throwing more and more resources, and most importantly, human resources, into the battle. 
trying to win at any cost. But this is not going to happen. He's not going to win. Let's talk about what winning looks like from your point of view. I, I want to get to the diplomacy in a moment, but to stay with the battlefield, what counts as victory for Ukraine as of now? Well, point one is restoration of Ukraine's territorial integrity within its internationally recognized borders. You mean Not to include Crimea? In, I have to, uh, <laughs> you know, I always ask journalists to not ask me uh, this uh, about include Crimea. And the reason for that is very simple, because for us, there is no difference between Crimea and Donbass. There is no difference between Kherson and uh, Simferopol or Yalta cities in Crimea. And when you make this point, including Crimea, you kind of single it out as if it was something special, while it's not. It's just another part of Ukraine that was stolen by Russia. As simple as that. And yes, we're talking about restoration of Ukraine's territorial integrity, including every square inch of our soil. So, point taken. But as you know, the, the Pentagon here in the U.S. says that's not likely to happen, at least militarily. General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, have said a Ukrainian military victory, if you're defining that as kicking the Russians out of all of Ukraine, including Donbass, including Crimea, he says, and I'm quoting, the probability of that happening anytime soon is not high militarily. Yes, I understand that, but we always have to remember that the probability of Ukraine surviving the Russian invasion and the probability of you and me talking in January 2023 was even less likely and was even lower than the, the one you are mentioning. You're saying Ukraine has outperformed all expectations so far. Why not keep going? Ukraine has outperformed even its own expectations. So let's turn to the diplomacy. I saw where recently you talked about how you hope to have a peace summit toward the end of February, preferably at the United Nations, maybe with the Secretary General Guterres as a possible mediator. I'm trying to square that, uh, the idea of Russia coming to the table with what you have just told me about how you perceive Russia uh, continuing to fight uh, and continuing to attack. Do you see any signs of Russia being willing to come to the negotiating table? Mm, not at this point. In fact, we see that they are rejecting the peace formula proposed by President Zelensky. But uh, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep trying. We have to pursue a diplomatic process as well. And this is what President Zelensky came, came up with. A peace formula consisting of 10 simple steps. Some of them require Russia's participation, some don't. Uh, Russia may like it or may not like it, but it's uh, about building a coalition, a coalition of countries who are willing to seek diplomatic solution along the lines proposed by President Zelensky. Foreign Minister, I want to put to you the same question that I put to you the first time I interviewed you a year ago. I asked you to make the case why was it in the national security interests of the United States to help you, to help Ukraine fight this fight? And I want to put it to you again today because, as you know, some Americans, including some members of Congress, grow weary of sending so much money to Ukraine when we have so many problems of our own in America. So make the case for why that aid should continue. 
because if Ukraine loses, the world in which the United States plays such an important role will begin to fall apart. Because if Ukraine loses countries, some malign actors across the world will prefer to follow the Russian path and to take the same risks, to invade, to commit atrocities, to destroy trade. And this is everything that the United States had defended over decades and centuries of its foreign policy. And to be clear, this is however long it takes. If you and I are having this conversation again in January 2024, the case remains the same? Hopefully not. But it's up for the U.S. government and other partners of Ukraine to make their decisions on how long they are going to support us. But we have made our choice. We have made a decision. We are going to fight against an invader as long as we can breath. Dmitry Kaleba, he is the foreign minister of Ukraine, speaking to us from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Kiev. Dmitry Kaleba, thank you. It was a pleasure to speak with you again. Thank you, Marilis. All the best to you. This is NPR News. No matter who wins tonight's college football final, history is going to be made. It's a showdown between returning champs, the Georgia Bulldogs, and the Texas Christian University Horned Frogs. If Georgia takes it, the Dogs will have their first repeat national championship ever. But... If you're more interested in underdogs, well, we've got to talk about the Horned Frogs. If they win, TCU would be the first team in more than 30 years to start the season unranked and end it with a national title. Holly Anderson, co-host of the Shutdown Fullcast, billed as the world's only college football podcast, joins me now. Hey, Holly. Hello. All right, so let's start off with the Horned Frogs. Can you just give us a little bit of historical context about just how unlikely TCU's appearance is in this game? First of all, TCU is a private school. They don't have a large alumni base. And what that translates to in the college football sphere is they're operating at a funding and a resource deficiency compared to a huge juggernaut program like Georgia. No matter what happens tonight, TCU has already pulled off a historic one-year turnaround. They have two claimed titles in their school history. They've been playing football since, I think, 1896. Both of their titles occurred in the 1930s. They're also less than a year removed from kicking out an institution. They fired their head coach of who'd been at the school for decades in one role or another, Gary Patterson. There's a statue of him on campus. Mm. And he was he was pushed out last year. So not only do they have a first year head coach, they're trying to win a college football title against a team that has every possible material advantage. Okay, so take us through this season. How exactly did a school like TCU, with all of the backstory you've just explained, make it to the final? If I told you, you wouldn't understand it anymore if you had watched it happen yourself. That's not a dig. They... TCU isn't as talented on paper, you know, isn't as isn't as big, isn't as physically strong on paper uh, than Georgia is, but they just keep doing this. Before I let you go, I've got one last question for people out there who maybe don't know every player's stats and story and all the history behind this game. I'm hoping you can just quickly give me one player for each team that we should be watching tonight. 
So Georgia is the Monstars, for those of you who grew up in the Space Jam era. But Georgia has a pair of tight ends, one of whom may or may not be playing tonight. Darnell Washington is uh, going to be a game time call, but Darnell Washington and Brock Bowers are... They are monsters among monsters. They are kaiju. There is no physical reason on this earth that they should be that big and move that fast, but they do. It's like looking at a pair of statues on Easter Island, and they have two of them, and they can move at warp speed. It's absolutely terrifying. But their secondary is vulnerable, and the last time they faced a single receiver who is as good as Quentin Johnson is for TCU, they got lit up. He will be catching balls from Max Duggan, who is another one of those narratives that college football types love. You know, he's a he's a country kid from Council Bluffs, Iowa, from a, a blue-collar town. He is entering the NFL draft after this game, so this is his last stand on the collegiate level. And when things tend to go off script, he can go off script very effectively. He does have the ability to surprise you, so keep an eye out there. We've been talking with Holly Anderson, co-host of the Shutdown Fullcast. Holly, thank you. Thank you so much, Juana. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a conversation with the author of the new book, You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. Start the day with WBUR tomorrow morning. In the fight against climate change, Mass General Hospital wants to encourage anesthesiologists to use gases that emit less carbon dioxide during surgery. That story and the latest on the insurrection in Brazil when you ask your smart speaker to play WBUR tomorrow morning. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, The Art of Burning, a comedy exploring the love, rage, and responsibility that go with marriage and parenting in America, starts January 13th. HuntingtonTheater.org. Should have a clear and chilly night tonight, down around 29 degrees for a low, few gusty winds around tonight. And for tomorrow, should turn out much like today, a little bit colder. It may not break 40 degrees. A good deal of sunshine, though, tomorrow. And then for Wednesday, some clouds move in, a mixture of sunshine and clouds during the day. Could have some damp weather coming in later in the week. This is WBUR. It's 449. WBUR supporters include the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. After a series of botched executions, the state of Alabama is moving toward a fix. It could soon begin executing death row inmates using nitrogen hypoxia, or death by lethal gas. And it's not alone. Oklahoma, Mississippi, Missouri, California, Wyoming, and Arizona all have legalized execution by gas. We'll take a look at why. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. This time of year, there's a lot of pressure to change the way you look. And a lot of that pressure is rooted in what author and podcast host Aubrey Gordon describes as anti-fatness. Anti-fatness is a sort of web of beliefs, interpersonal practices, institutional policies that are designed to keep fat people sort of on the margins. And along with that come myths, a whole lot of them about fat people. 
Myths like being fat is a choice. Researchers have been clear for years that our body size isn't solely or even primarily the result of our own choices. Or that BMI, body mass index, is a reliable way to measure health. The BMI was not developed by a healthcare provider. It was developed by a mathematician, statistician, and astronomer working exclusively with data from French and Scottish military conscripts in the 1800s. Gordon debunks all this and more in her new book, You Just Need to Lose Weight, and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. When we talked, we started with the idea of an average body size and how it plays into everything in our environment, from the size of airplane seats to the distance between tables at a restaurant to the size of a blood pressure cuff at the doctor's office. I appreciate you bringing up the idea of quote unquote average. It's worth reminding ourselves in these conversations that in the United States, the average is plus size, right? The average person is a fat person. So we are building environments that are hostile, not only to sort of some vanishingly small minority of people, but to most of us. I'd like to ask you about just one more myth in this book, and it's the idea that fat people should not call themselves fat. And mm. can you just, for people who have never experienced this before, talk about the types of responses that that can sometimes elicit and what's wrong with that? Yeah, absolutely. I will say this is one that happens to me very regularly. The most recent example was I was at a women's soccer game. I'm like a huge women's soccer fan <laughs> with a friend of mine <laughs> um, and was looking at their sort of merchandise um, and was flipping through the racks and they didn't have an offering in plus sizes um, that would fit me. And a friend was like, you should get a t-shirt. And I was like, no, they don't have fat lady sizes. <laughs> and a stranger turned around and went, don't call yourself that. That's terrible. You're not. And I thought, well... I'm a size 26, <laughs> you know, I weigh over 300 pounds. I don't know where your standard is for fat people, but I'm pretty sure I'm in it by most people's standards, right? But it is this very strange moment where my understanding of my own body as a fat body, which I think of pretty neutrally, when I say that other people and usually thinner people rush to object to that and what they're responding to there isn't the accuracy of my statement, right? They're not disputing that my body is like actually small. They're sort of shadow boxing with their own kind of assumptions about what it means to be a fat person, right? They're assuming that what I am saying is that I am unlovable, that I'm undesirable, that I'm ugly, that I'm rejected, that I'm unlikable, all of these sorts of things. And while they think they are defending me, what ends up happening is that they don't end up listening to me, right? And this becomes a place where thin people start to name fat people's experiences and bodies for us without really realizing how kind of wild that is to tell someone else how to feel about their own body and how to describe it. You know, I really like that this book includes all of these really practical, often quite simple calls to action. And in the section that you wrote about this myth, you challenge people to say and hear the word fat in a neutral manner. Why is that so important? The more comfortable that people, particularly people who are not fat, can get with hearing the word fat, the more they'll be able to actually hear out actual fat people's experiences, right? I think the other thing that it does is it requires folks to face their own biases and what they've attached to the word fat. 
so that they're not going around and projecting those assumptions or that sort of emotional baggage onto fat people who are mostly just trying to live our lives. You know, another thing you suggest that people do when they're thinking about the language they use is to say what they really mean. So instead of saying when they're thinking about themselves, I feel fat, maybe say to yourself instead, I feel tired or I'm struggling with my body image today. Why is a shift like that so impactful? I will say it's impactful for a couple of reasons. One is that fat is not actually an emotion, right? Fat is a body type. And fat people's bodies are not metaphors for low self-esteem or bad body image days, right? It is really disheartening that when people want to talk about feeling at their worst in their bodies, the descriptor that they reach for is a descriptor of my body. They're saying, I feel terrible today, which means I feel like I look like you, which feels terrible to me as a fat person, right? The more that folks can talk about the real thing, it actually gets you more precise help and support from your friend. So the next question I have for you, I have to say, is a little bit personal. Um, mm. I'm somebody who probably falls into the category of which you describe in your book as a smaller fat person. So mm. I'm on the lower range of plus sizes. Sometimes it's really hard in a mainstream store to find clothes that fit me well. And mm. Like many people, my relationship with my potty over the years has been kind of a roller coaster. And one thing that I have found, especially recently, is that while I'm an imperfect person like all of us, I try to be very vocal and upfront about challenging anti-fatness in the relationships in my life and in the communities I show up in, whether it's at work or in fitness spaces or in my family. But I find when I think about it, it's a lot more difficult when it comes to my relationship with myself and my own body. And I'm just curious how you think about that. Yeah, it's so tricky, right? It's such a hard thing. I mean, I think different things work for different people when it comes to sort of addressing our body image stuff. I think one of the things that has been really helpful and impactful to a lot of folks is filling their social media feeds with people who look like them or who are fatter than them or hold more marginalized identities that they do. Build a social media feed that feels more reflective of the world that we live in um, is a really important step for a lot of folks. I will say for me, the stuff that gets my relationship with my body back on track is actually sort of peeling back the curtain on where a bunch of our most reductive beliefs about body size come from. And overwhelmingly, they come from really unreliable sources like scientific racism in the 1800s, right? Like corporations looking to profit off of our bad body image, right? Like all of this sort of stuff comes from people who don't want what's best for most of us, right? They want to make a buck or they want to prove a political point or what have you. And it's really freeing to realize, you know, we've been sort of led down a garden path. And once you sort of see where that garden path leads and where it came from, things have gotten a lot easier for me on that front. Aubrey Gordon, thank you so much for talking with us today. This is such a joy. Thank you for having me. Aubrey Gordon is the author of You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. It's out tomorrow. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, 
For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR, 39 degrees in the Boston area, a waning moon tonight with clear skies, a little below freezing overnight. And for tomorrow, sunshine's back, so is the breeze, should be about 39 degrees for a high. And then Wednesday, partly sunny with highs in the 30s yet again. Temperatures should pick up and the possibility of rain coming down toward the end of the week. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Understanding that now, more than ever, we need the ocean, and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu slash team. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden's in Mexico City to discuss issues from migration to climate to the drug fentanyl with leaders in Mexico and Canada. Biden's taking on some of the most politically charged issues facing the United States. It's Monday, January 9th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, China has officially opened borders to inbound travelers for the first time in nearly three years. This year may be pivotal for the future of cryptocurrency. One expert predicts a huge decline in the number of currencies on the market. There's about 22,000 tokens traded on about 170 exchanges globally. And most of those tokens have virtually no intrinsic value. What 2023 holds for digital currency coming up. It's 501. News headlines and the forecast are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Thousands of nurses are on strike in New York City today. Gwen Hogan of member station WNYC reports roughly 7,000 nurses from Mount Sinai in the Upper East Side and Montefiore in the Bronx are on strike. Save staffing, save lives! Hundreds of nurses picketed outside a Bronx hospital, chanting, safe staffing saves lives. Negotiations have stalled between the nurses' union and hospital management over staffing levels. Nurses on the picket line say they regularly take on twice or three times as many patients as they're supposed to care for. They say they get burned out and patients suffer. Nurse Nicola Nicole. So we're walking today, not for the money, but for adequate nursing staff. And that comes right back to taking care of our patients. A total of around 7,000 nurses are striking in the city. A spokesperson for one hospital network called the nurses union reckless. Another impacted hospital says they've canceled elective surgeries and procedures and apologized to patients for the inconvenience. For NPR News, I'm Gwen Hogan in New York. Brazilian officials are voting today on whether to protect democracy and punish thousands of supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro, a mob that in an echo 
of January 6 in the U.S. stormed Brazil's capital and trashed some key government buildings. Protesters swarmed into the country's Congress, Supreme Court and Presidential Palace over the weekend. Speaking at the White House today, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said he expects the regime of newly elected President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva to prevail. We think Brazilian democracy is resilient strong and will come through this. Brazil's justice minister says the acts amounted to terrorism and coup-mongering. He says police have begun tracking down those who paid for the buses that transported protesters to the capital. Climate change makes heat waves, storms and droughts more severe. That's according to a new report out today. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports the findings were released at the annual meeting of the American Meteorological Association. The new report by top climate scientists looks at how climate change affected weather disasters around the world in recent years. One of the big takeaways is that heat waves are increasingly likely as the Earth heats up. For example, temperatures were 7 degrees above average during a heat wave in South Korea in 2021. Such a heat wave would have been exceedingly rare in the past, something that would happen every 6,000 years on average. But scientists found that if greenhouse gas emissions aren't reduced, such heat waves will be the new norm in South Korea by 2060. Climate change is also making hot, dry conditions more likely, which can cause soil to get very dry. The mega drought in the western U.S. is a prime example. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow is down 112 points, but the Nasdaq ended the session up 66 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two prisoners at the Middleton Jail and House of Correction have been indicted for attacks on two correctional officers. Jorge Delgado Medina of Melrose and Adrian de la Cruz of Lawrence face assault charges. Prosecutors say the men attacked and injured the two officers in October. Jail officials found 11 weapons in the facility after the assault. The Essex County Sheriff says there's been an increase in prisoner aggression as the number of people waiting for trial for violent crimes has risen. In Dorchester, the Columbia Road entrance to the MBTA's JFK UMass Red Line station is expected to reopen this week. It's been closed since November because of structural problems with a walkway that crosses over the tracks. The station was closed over the weekend to allow for repair work. The T says that work is not yet done, but it should be complete with in the next few days. Meanwhile, the station is open today and accessible through another entrance. A majority of likely voters in the state want the legislature to keep the tax law that triggered almost $3 billion in rebates last year. The law requires rebates for taxpayers if state revenue in a fiscal year exceeds the growth of wages and salaries in the state. A poll by the Conservative Fiscal Alliance Foundation shows 62 percent of people surveyed want to keep the law in place, 16 percent want to repeal it. And Bill Belichick says he plans to return as the Patriots' head coach next season. He spoke during a press conference this morning, one day after the team lost and missed its chance to make the playoffs. He says no one with the Patriots is satisfied with how the past season went and the team needs to improve on its performance. Accountability everywhere, starting with me, coaching staff players, each unit, um, are all things that we will address, and that process will start uh, probably later today. Palachek says he and owner Robert Kraft will talk about how to move forward and have conversations with many players. Patriots owner Robert Kraft sent a letter to season ticket holders today saying the team will critically evaluate all elements of its football operations. 
in the forecast. Hang on to your hat tonight. Likely to be windy, a little bit below freezing tonight. Tomorrow still breezy, a little chillier than it has been today, down around 39 degrees, still sunny tomorrow. And then a few clouds moving in with the sunshine on Wednesday. 39 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. On a Monday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Authorities in Brazil have detained more than a 1,000 people after yesterday's violent assault on the country's government buildings. The riots, led by supporters of the country's former far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, they'd been calling on the military to restore Bolsonaro to power, even though he lost his re-election bid last October to current president, leftist Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. We're joined now by NPR South America correspondent Kerry Kahn for the latest. Hi, Kerry. Hi. So, Carrie, Brazil's recent election was bitterly contested and it left the country divided. The violence that occurred yesterday was a scenario that many had been fearing. What are you hearing from authorities? That was the message that we heard today from the newly installed justice minister. His name is Flavio Dino. He said that for the last four years under the former president Bolsonaro, there had been what he called the atmosphere of hate speech. Como nós alertamos esses anos todos. He's saying that uh, what we've warned all these years, word that what we warned about was that words have power, and these words turned into hate and turned into the destruction that was seen yesterday. He said that, of course, the investigation into the crimes of the supporters, the vandalisms, those who committed the vandalism, the financing the, of these encampments that had been set up. Um, in front of the army barracks in Brasilia will all be investigated and people who are involved will be prosecuted. But he also said that he's after the political actors who facilitated a political atmosphere that was so toxic that it came down to what he called a coup d'etat, an attempt to overthrow the government. And they should be held accountable to the Brazilian people. Look, the last four years under Bolsonaro were very divisive for this country. Bolsonaro was a far-right nationalist, as he said. He was not shy to disparage racial groups, women. He was hostile to gay rights, environmentalists, and indigenous people too. And Lula narrowly won the election last October, and that was a major shift for this country that is still very divided. As we've just heard, the cleanup is just beginning, but how widespread is the destruction of the government buildings there? It, it's it's amazing, Juana. I was I just got back from walking through the expansive government complex here. That's called the Plaza of the Three Powers, and housed there is the Congress. There's a huge uh, Supreme Court building and the Presidential Office offices, and the destruction is just everywhere. I, I couldn't go inside, but from the outside, there's just uh, you just see the broken windows. There's furniture and artwork strewn and littered all around the buildings. Uh, the Supreme Court looks like it was the most damaged, with graffiti over any hu- this huge glass panes in the front that were not totally broken, but broken windows are everywhere else. The rioters ripped up the stone walkways near all three buildings. They used the rocks to, to actually smash the windows and to vandalize the buildings. So all of this will need to be repaired. It's, it's quite a different scene than, this is the same place just a week ago Sunday. The entire Esplanade was packed with hundreds of thousands of people celebrating Lula's inaugurations and celebrations. So it, it's just a stark difference from the just one week ago. 
Well, Carrie, I understand you've been at one of the sites of the Bolsonaro encampments there. What did you see there? Yes, I was there earlier today, and this is this encampment, and it's just in ruins. It was raining quite a lot today, and so everything was just a muddy mess. And it was um, an encampment that had swelled the thousands of Bolsonaro supporters right in front of the military barracks here in Brasilia. And there's just tents of all sizes, huge ones that were where there was a kitchen, there was medical areas, a speaker stage. Now it's just mounds of garbage, foods, deflated plastic. And I met this one man out in front. He didn't want to give me his name because he was afraid of being arrested. And he said he didn't march yesterday, but he said he spent several days and nights with the demonstrators here. And he said they are fighting against the stolen election. But once they committed crime, destroying buildings and things that people were not supposed to do, they, they lost their reason. He didn't agree with the vandalism, and he said that he believes uh, he that he believes Bolsonaro's false and unproven claims that the election was rigged and stolen. And he said that protesters may have been arrested today or yesterday, but um, they will not stop fighting against President Lula. Carrie, in the couple of seconds we've got left, former President Bolsonaro remains in Florida. Have we heard any more from him today? He tweeted a little bit. He said he's not responsible for the violence, but he's also in the hospital. Uh, mm -hmm. He has uh, complications from a stomach. Um, he was stabbed in the stomach several years ago, and he's in the hospital in Florida right now. Okay. It's unclear whether um, he will return to Brazil soon. NPR's Carrie Kahn reporting from Brazil's capital. Thank you. You're welcome. Cryptocurrencies have been touted as the future of finance. Now they are in crisis. Bitcoin is floundering after a sharp sell-off. And of course, there's the fallout from the catastrophic collapse of the cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, which now is spreading. And Piers David Gura joins me. And David, I want to start with FTX. Everybody's talking about it. What does it actually tell us about the wider state of crypto? Well, for one thing, it tells us how much has changed. I mean, just go back to the beginning of last year when crypto was being marketed as the next big thing with these marquee endorsements and Super Bowl ads. Well, now FTX has imploded, and that's raising questions about this whole industry because this company that had name recognition and a global footprint is now at the center of what's allegedly one of the largest frauds in history. So FTX's collapse is shaping the public sense of what crypto is, Mary Louise, and that's not going to change as... We learn more about the company's downfall as its former CEO fights criminal charges and as FTX under new leadership goes through bankruptcy proceedings. Yeah, stay with where everything stands in court for a second. What's the latest? Yeah, so Sam Bankman-Fried recently pleaded not guilty to eight criminal charges. And if he's convicted at trial, which is scheduled to start in October, Bankman-Fried could spend the rest of his life in prison. Federal prosecutors are building their case on hundreds of thousands of documents they say will shed light on how Bankman-Fried's crypto empire operated. Then in Delaware, in Bank court, more than a million creditors, including many FTX customers, are trying to recover money that's gone missing. Remember, what's alleged is that Bankman-Fried misused customer money, and one thing he's accused of is using it to cover losses when cryptocurrency prices cratered. So as prosecutors and investigators uncover more, we're going to get new details on how interconnected the world of crypto is and also how much this sector has evaded scrutiny. Um, I said when I introduced you that the fallout from the collapse of FTX is spreading. How so? Yeah, there is going to be more scrutiny. We're going to see more about that. Law enforcement will come down harder on cryptocurrency companies going 
going forward. And keep in mind, many first-time investors lost money buying Bitcoin and other digital currencies when they peaked. There's fear other crypto companies may crash and burn. Alka Shah is a strategist at Bank of America, and he says the industry just can't continue as is. For, for one thing, there are too many tokens, too many different kinds of cryptocurrencies. So if you take a step back, there's about 22,000 tokens traded on about 170 exchanges globally. And most of those tokens have virtually no intrinsic value. Shaw expects maybe 50 of them will be viable after this reset. So just think about that, Mary Louise. He predicts we'll go from 22,000 different kinds of cryptocurrency to just 50. Yeah, that's quite the change in terms of the number of cryptocurrencies mm. we may be looking about looking at. What about their value? What is Wall Street expecting? Well, the so-called crypto winter shows no signs of thawing. It's a downturn that kicked off when the Federal Reserve started hiking interest rates to fight high inflation and investors lost their appetite for risk. Bitcoin fell by about 60% last year. Madeline Hume is an analyst from Morningstar and she says we may be in the bleakest days of that crypto winter and pessimism is pervasive. It's been cold for so long. There are no more holidays or ski vacations to look forward to and there's no end in sight. Bitcoin is up slightly nine days into the new year, trading at around $17,000, Mary Louise, but that is still a far cry from its all-time high of about $69,000. And that's not ancient history. Bitcoin set that record just over a year ago. Thank you, David. Thank you. And Piers David Gura. After nearly three years virtually cut off from the rest of the world, China opened its borders this week. That means inbound travelers no longer need to wait out a government-arranged quarantine. And at Beijing's main airport, there were tearful and joyous scenes as people began traveling internationally again. NPR's Emily Fang reports. For the first time in a long time, travelers disembarked from their international flights in China and ran directly into the arms of waiting loved ones and not white hazmat-suited health workers waiting to take them to quarantine. This feels so strange, one traveler exclaims. Ikushi Shimada, a Japanese exchange student, was at the airport to see off his girlfriend. He himself would also fly back to Tokyo in two weeks. Uh, he explains that he hasn't gone home in nearly two years because when borders closed, he feared he wouldn't be able to re-enter China to finish his degree if he left. So he stayed. Nearby, the Lin family was hugging it out. Miss Lin, the matriarch, was teary-eyed. Her daughter was returning to London for work. She'd only been in China for her 15-day holiday break and spent eight of those days in quarantine before borders reopened. Before, I wasn't so tearful and sorrowful seeing her off, Miss Lin says. But this time, it hurts so much. Perhaps it's because of the pandemic, she says. It makes the distances far, and you realize how difficult and rare it is to see your loved ones. Because this week was not a complete opening for China. You still have to get a visa to go if you don't have citizenship, and visas are hard to get. And airlines are still adding international flights to China again. 
only 10 international flights landed on Monday in Beijing Capital Airport, a reminder of just how closed off China became during the pandemic. Emily Fang, NPR News. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, in the wake of tragedy, the wife of soccer journalist Grant Wall confronts disinformation about her husband's sudden death during the World Cup. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. There's a mixed showing on Wall Street today. The Dow lost about a third of a percent, 113 points to close at 33,518. S&P dipped less than a tenth of a percent to end the day at 38.92. The Nasdaq notched a second day of gains, up six-tenths of a percent to finish at 10,636. French biopharma company Ipsen is set to acquire Boston-based Albreo Pharma for over $950 million. Ipsen says Albreo's drug Bilve is the key to the deal. The Food and Drug Administration approved the drug in 2021 to treat a rare pediatric liver disease. Business news coming up on Marketplace. It starts in just over an hour at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Clear and breezy overnight tonight, down around 29 degrees. Tomorrow, 39 for a high, more sunshine due in. And then Wednesday, sunshine and some clouds, right about 38 degrees for a high. Could turn cloudy and possibly wet come Thursday, maybe Friday as well. The sun set today at 429, giving us 9 hours, 17 minutes of daylight. Use them well. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On December 9th, the phone of epidemiologist and infectious disease physician Celine Gounder started blowing up. She was getting calls, texts, emails, all with the same message. Her husband of 21 years, the soccer journalist Grant Wall, had collapsed halfway around the world while covering the World Cup in Qatar. An hour later, Gounder learned that Wall had died. The sudden, unexplained death of a loved one is a nightmare for anyone, but Gounder's pain was instantly compounded. As soon as news of Wall's death spread, so too did rumors about what killed her husband. The top theory, that the COVID vaccine was responsible. It wasn't. An autopsy later showed that Grant Wall died from an aortic aneurysm. Gounder gave interviews, widely shared the results of her husband's autopsy, but the rumors and conspiracies have persisted. Now, she's speaking out again. Celine Gounder joins me now, and before we talk about why you're here, 
I just want to say how sorry I am for your loss. Thanks, Juana. How have you been doing? That's a really tough question to answer. (laughs) I'm surviving. Um, I have been surrounded by the support and love of so many family and friends, and I'm just so very thankful for that. I want to turn now to the reason why you and I are speaking today. Besides this conversation, you've also published an opinion piece in the New York Times. What's prompting you to speak out now? I really had hoped that when I first put out a written statement that I did several interviews on various different media platforms, that that would really put these conspiracy theories to an end, that by putting out the information, people who were asking for an explanation would have had their explanation, and that then I could take a breath and grieve in privacy. And then when Damar Hamlin's uh, cardiac arrest occurred during the game on the field, that unfortunately stirred up a lot of these conspiracy theories all over again. And Damar Hamlin, that's the safety for the Buffalo Bills who collapsed during a Monday night football game. Yes. And I started to get messages again, um, as I had early on, from anti-vax conspiracy theorists who were blaming uh, not only my husband's death, but also Damar Hanlon's cardiac arrest, as well as the deaths of other young, healthy people recently on the COVID vaccines. And I felt at that point that I did have to take these conspiracy theories head on. You know, we should point out for those who may not be familiar that you have been a public prominent health voice during the pandemic. You advised the Biden administration on COVID during the presidential transition What was it like for you to see your husband's death used by people who are spreading misinformation about COVID vaccines and continue to do so even weeks later? It felt so exploitive to use this horrible tragedy for me and my family to exploit that for their own ends. Uh, Disinformation is a business model. Make no mistake about it. And these are people who are trying to make money, who are trying to gain social media followers or subscribers on Substack or some kind of social status or power. And that really is just re-traumatizing not just me and my family, but others who have been victims of this kind of behavior. You know, at this point, you have been fighting vaccine misinformation for years. Yet in that op-ed, you write that it's a normal human impulse to want answers in the wake of a sudden tragedy Is that enough to explain some of the misinformation in response to your husband's death? I do think people, especially close family and friends, uh, were really asking questions. I was asking questions. It was really important to me to know what was the cause of death. And uh, getting the autopsy gave me at least some partial sense of closure of having an answer. But when people call for investigations, I think they really have to step back and ask themselves, what are they talking about when they say investigation? An autopsy by a medical examiner and forensic scientists, that is an investigation into this kind of death. And I think what some of these folks are really saying when they say they want an investigation, they want the criminal justice system turned against these unfortunate victims like myself and my my family because they don't like, you know, what we stand for, um, in my case, a public health message. Uh, and they really want to punish us for what we uh, stand for. You also wrote about one incredibly troubling email that you received during all of this about karma. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, and this is one of uh, a few hundred, actually, as well as voicemail messages and other kinds of harassing messages. But uh, this particular um, email blamed me for having killed my husband because he got COVID vaccinations and said this was karma, that I was being punished for having done this. I do believe in karma. I do believe in the idea that how we behave, how, what we put out into the world impacts our experience of the world. And I think if you look at the outpouring of love and support uh, for my husband and our family after his death, I think that shows evidence of karma. Um, and he really lived a very moral life. Um, believed in seeking out the truth in his reporting, but also believed in issues of social justice and fighting for human rights in his journalism. And I think that is why so many people reached out in the aftermath because of how he lived his life. You know, as I think about what that email said, what it implied, I, I can't imagine receiving it about someone that I loved so very much. How did you, how did you respond to that? How did you deal with that? Well, on the one hand, I've been getting, you know, threats, uh, rape threats, death threats for years now uh, because of my work. And honestly, I had learned to shrug those off. Um, but this was just, uh, it hurt a lot. Grant did not deserve that. My family does not deserve that. Before I let you go, I want to end by asking you about Grant. It is clear that he had this incredible body of work that many people remember him by. And you've really channeled a horrible situation into protecting public health in your husband's name. How should people remember him? And what do you want people to know about the work that you have been doing since his death? My husband was an amazing writer. His turn of phrase uh, was lyrical. He was also a feminist, and when I say feminist, not just uh, in terms of equality for women, but really across the board. Um, and he tried to use sports journalism as a way of explaining culture, politics, and fighting for social justice. We've been talking with infectious disease physician and epidemiologist Celine Gounder. She's also a senior fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Her husband, sports journalist Grant Wall, died of an aortic aneurysm in December. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Juana. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBR, racial justice and crack cocaine. Checking sports, Boston Celtics return home to the Garden tonight to host the Chicago Bulls. Tip-off is at 7.30. Marcus Smart will be out for tonight's game. Celts guard suffered a knee injury Saturday in the team's victory over the San Antonio Spurs. And Patriots linebacker coach Gerard Mayo is getting attention from other teams. Multiple media reports say the Cleveland Browns want to interview him for their opening defensive coordinator job. This is 90.9 WBUR, 39 degrees in Boston. The time is 5.30.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses, stanhopeframers.com, and Worcester Cultural Coalition, the Worcester Historical Museum's newest exhibit, Worcester Scene, Reseen, captures the city prior to the digital age, worcesterculture.org. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. In New York City, more than 7,000 nurses at two healthcare systems walked off the job this morning. Employees are demanding better pay, working conditions, and more staffing. Isabella Parker, a nurse at Mount Sinai, was among those walking the picket line. Us being out here means that we're willing to stay out here until however long it takes. Um, you know, we need to. We need to improve the conditions here. You know, it's what's right for our patients and what's right for our profession, you know. The nurses' union failed to reach an agreement with hospital administration during a bargaining session last night. In a statement today, the New York State Nurses Association said it's time for the hospitals to treat nurses fairly with dignity and respect they deserve. The political dark cloud that's been following Republican Congressman George Santos since before he took office is getting bigger. NPR's Jasmine Guards reports a nonpartisan watchdog is now accusing Santos of breaking campaign finance laws. The Campaign Legal Center alleges embattled New York Representative George Santos illegally used campaign funds to pay for personal expenses. That he concealed the source of over $700,000 he raised and that he falsified how he spent his campaign funds. The watchdog group has filed a complaint with the Federal Election Commission. Santos is already under fire for having fabricated much of his biography. While campaigning, he falsely claimed that he is Jewish and his family survived the Holocaust. Federal prosecutors are already looking at his campaign finances and Santos faces fraud charges in Brazil. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. UMass Boston and Chelsea Public Schools have reinstituted a mandatory mask policy for students and staff. But as WBUR's Carrie Young reports, education watchers expect few other schools to mandate face coverings despite an ongoing surge in COVID cases. UMass Boston says its decision came after the CDC raised Suffolk County's COVID community risk level from medium to high. Chelsea Public Schools also relied on that metric. School committee member Roberto Jimenez-Rivera says those voicing opposition are mostly from outside the school community. It is a lot of pushback, I think, from folks who have been advocating against mask mandates across the state. We're also not getting a huge cry out for we need to mask uh, from our community either. Still, leaders with the Massachusetts Association of School Committees says it's unlikely that a large number of other districts will follow suit with mask mandates. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. 
Regulators say the sports betting site FanDuel meets the criteria to operate in Massachusetts. The State Gaming Commission made the decision unanimously this afternoon. FanDuel is one of several online operators hoping to be part of Massachusetts' upcoming sports betting program. Today's declaration moves the company one step closer to obtaining a license to operate. Online sports betting is on track to become legal in March. British drug company AstraZeneca is set to acquire Waltham-based Syncor Pharma. The $1.8 billion deal was announced today. Syncor is focused on developing a drug to treat hypertension and some kidney diseases. The company was one of just eight Massachusetts biotechs to go public last year. And the Boston Museum of Fine Arts and Citizens Bank are hosting what they're calling painting pop-ups prior to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. That's one week from today. A mural was made by teenagers from the organization Artists for Humanity. It will travel to bank branches throughout Boston all week long. People are invited to fill in the mural's template by adding color to bring it to life. Lisa Murray is president of Citizens Bank of Massachusetts. She says the goal of the collaborative painting is to celebrate themes Dr. King preached. Bring MLK into the community and really heighten his message. We're just inspired by Dr. King's message of hope, unity, and commitment to service, which is just so incredibly important. The messages that he expound upon 50s and 60s is still really relevant today. The completed project will be on display at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston next Monday. This is WBUR. It's 535. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. Should have a nice night ahead tonight. Clear skies continuing. A cold wind down around 29 degrees. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies again. The upper 30s for a high. Sun and clouds should mix it up on Wednesday, right about 38 degrees once again. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Migration, the economy, trying to stop fentanyl traffickers. Those are just some of the items on the agenda as President Biden meets today with his Mexican counterpart, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Biden is in Mexico City for the North American Leaders Summit. And so is NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Hey, Tam. Hello there. Hi. So get us read in. What has happened so far at this summit? Well, things are just getting underway now. And tonight, Biden, Lopez Obrador and uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and their spouses are all having dinner together. Tomorrow, the real meetings take place. And it isn't just the leaders. Seemingly half of President Biden's cabinet is down here holding meetings with their counterparts as well. One big topic uh, that we know about is nearshoring, bringing production of things like microchips and car parts and even pharmaceuticals to North America. The pandemic and ongoing supply chain issues were a real wake-up call uh, that the U.S. and its neighbors were too dependent on China. Um, So uh, 
earlier this year or late last year, you had Congress pass the Chips and Science Act to boost chip production in the U.S. There was also an element of the Inflation Reduction Act favoring manufacturing in North America. I, I spoke with Martha Barsana Coqui, a former Mexican ambassador to the U.S. So I think this is one of the most important issues on the concept of the vision of North America for the future as the most competitive region in the world. The U.S. cannot do it alone. So part of what they're doing this week is setting the groundwork for these three nations to work together to bring back some of this manufacturing. And what about the personal relationship between these three leaders? Do you have a, a sense of what that, uh, how that's playing out so far? Well, Biden has spent a lot more time with Trudeau on issues associated with Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, And he's still building his relationship with Lopez Obrador, uh, who is a leftist leftist populist who really got along well with former President Trump. On this trip, President Biden is going out of his way to get some of that face-to-face time that he puts so much stock into. And and what I mean is he is literally going out of his way. Uh, Lopez Obrador publicly asked Biden to fly into an airport that is famous for being inconvenient and distant (laughs) instead of the larger one that is closer to central Mexico City um, because that newer airport, um, its success is really important to Lopez Obrador uh, for domestic political reasons. So Biden flew into that airport uh, and then Lopez Obrador rode in the motorcade with him that took nearly 70 minutes. Uh, But National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters today that that was valuable time. He had the opportunity to ride with President Lopez Obrador from the airport back into town, which gave them the chance to just have a one-on-one chat, um, kind of how they're seeing the world right now, what's on their minds. Uh, I think they both got a lot out of it. (laughs) I love this. I can picture them taking the scenic route. Um, Do we know what they, did they manage to get anything of substance done beyond pleasantries? Well, Sullivan said that that was between the leaders, but we do know that today they are having a bilateral meeting talking about uh, fentanyl trafficking and also about migration. Late last week, President Biden announced a new migration policy to try to deal with the record flow of people seeking asylum from Venezuela, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Cuba. Um, Those people are trying Mm -hmm. to get to the U.S. through the U.S.-Mexico border, so it's a significant problem for both countries. That is absolutely on the agenda, and today, Lopez Obrador in his morning uh, press conference that lasts two hours, praised Biden for agreeing to take in more migrants and also criticized the new House Republican majority in the U.S. All right. And PR's Tamara Keith reporting today from Mexico City. Thank you. You're welcome. The end of 2022 saw a renewed push to end a harmful vestige in the war on drugs. Crack cocaine offenses have been punished much more harshly than crimes that involve powder forms of cocaine, a disparity that's hit thousands of black men the hardest. And recent efforts to change that still have some limitations. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports. Orrin Jackson knows firsthand what the work of Congress means to people in prison. And I was away from my daughter for 31 years and two months. When I left, she was six months old. Jackson once expected to die behind bars, but he's now free and working in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's because lawmakers passed a bill in 2018 that gave him the chance to ask a judge for his release for drug crimes. Jackson remembers the reunion with his daughter. And so it was just an amazing experience to be able to hug her and hold her as a free man. 
Jackson's one of many people who have traveled to Washington over the past two years, meeting with lawmakers to try to get them to pass the Equal Act. That bill would have equalized the punishment for certain cocaine crimes, making it the same for both crack and powder forms of the drug. The bill overwhelmingly passed the U.S. House, but it died in the Senate last month. Jackson says that news came like a slap in the face. A slap in the face to where you're not important. You're not important as an agenda. You're not important as issue. There's a real human cost to that. In the case of the Equal Act, there are 8,000 families. They're not going to be reunited. That's Janos Martin. He's national director of the Dream.org Justice Program, which lobbied for the bill. This was supposed to be the easy common sense bill that everybody could get behind. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, a Democrat, made that case last month as he pressed the Senate to vote. Republicans and Democrats join together all across the political spectrum to say that this was wrong, that we should make these pharmacologically identical substances have the same punishment. Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican, responded that now is the wrong time to make drug laws more lenient. This so-called Equal Act is likewise going to go easier on crack cocaine traffickers, including members of gangs and cartels. This would only exacerbate our problems. Kevin Ring says both parties bear some blame for the bill's demise. Republican opponents in the Senate refused to fast-track the legislation, Ring says, but Democrats controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House at the time. Ultimately, Republican opposition is what stopped it from passing by unanimous consent, but it was a failure of leadership to not give us a vote to give us a chance to win. Ring leads FAM, a nonprofit group that advocates for people in prison and their families. These families were so close to getting relief. I mean, they were calculating their husband's release dates, thinking this was going to pass, and now it was yanked out from under them. The Senate failed to act, but last month, Attorney General Merrick Garland did. He instructed prosecutors to charge crack and powder cocaine crimes the same way moving forward starting this month. Advocates welcome that move, but it has some limits. The policy doesn't apply to people already in prison, and it could be reversed if a new attorney general decides to change course. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat, tells NPR in a statement that he strongly believes in the Equal Act and won't give up on getting the bill done. Orrin Jackson says he'll be watching. And when you see something that's not fair, just inequitable, you have a responsibility and a duty when you're in a position to change that. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Officials in Newport News, Virginia, say a six-year-old who shot and wounded his teacher during class got the gun from his home. First-grade teacher Abby Zwerner was shot during a lesson on Friday. Ryan Murphy of member station WHRO joins us from Newport News. Ryan, welcome. Thanks for having me. Ryan, there have been a lot of questions about what happened inside that classroom at this elementary school. What, what have you learned? Um, so I just got out of a briefing uh, with the police chief and the superintendent. Um, we learned that, uh, you know, there hadn't been any sort of fitter altercation like had been rumored over the weekend. Um, we learned that the boy 
He pulled it out while the, the teacher was doing a lesson. He pointed it at her and he fired once. Um, we learned that she was shot sort of in the palm and, and in the upper chest by the same bullet. Um, you know, after she'd been shot, she was able to get all the kids, uh, other kids out of the classroom uh, out of danger um, before she was uh, tended to for her injuries. It's a sad fact that school shootings are unfortunately commonplace in the United States, but what happens when the accused shooter is a child who's just six years old? Yeah, that's a tough question. And uh, Newport News Police Chief Steve Drew said this was a case that was going to require a lot of nuance and a lot of time to, to make sure they did everything right. Right now, uh, the, the, the boy is six years old. He's being uh, held. Um, he was uh, he's being evaluated by mental health professionals. Uh, at some point, he'll either go before a judge or um, be, you know, uh, recommended for, for more services. Um, we've been talking to some legal experts. Uh, it seems really unlikely that a kid uh, this young would, would ever actually be criminally charged in something like this. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of questions about, you know, what, what a, a child of six would understand about, you know, the proceedings around them, the, the, the actions they undertook in the first place. Um, you know, so it's a really, really thorny question of, of what to do here. And Ryan, what do we know about how this boy obtained this gun? So the police have said that um, he took it from his home. His mother had purchased it legally. Um, but, you know, obviously there's a lot more questions that police haven't answered about how how did it come into the child's possession. Um, the police chief said whether the gun was secured at the home or not is a really critical question for them in their investigation. Um, here in Virginia, failing to secure a gun and keep it away from children is a misdemeanor. Uh, but as of yet, there are no charges against anyone, including the, the parents in this case. And what about that teacher, Abby Zwerner? How is she doing? It sounds like she's doing fairly well. Um, she was initially uh, reported to have life-threatening injuries, uh, but since then she's been uh, uh, listed as stable. Um, the police chief said he's had multiple conversations with her at this point, so she's talking. Um, and he said the first thing that she was asking about was how the, the students in her classroom were doing. Ryan, we've got about 30 seconds left. This has been a horribly tragic event that has touched so many people's lives in that community. How's the community reacting and what comes next? Uh, well, what comes next is obviously a big question. Uh, parents are obviously very freaked out. Some of them are keeping their kids out of school. Um, the school uh, classes at the elementary school where the shooting happened have been suspended for at least the next week. Um, and, you know, the superintendent said, you know, as much as he hates the idea of making any school look more like a prison, there may be, you know, metal detectors going up the elementary mm. schools in this city uh, sometime soon. Um, so that's, you know, there's a lot of questions asked and, and still to be answered in this community right now. That's reporter Ryan Murphy of WHRO in Virginia. Thank you. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the Golden Globe Awards are poised for a celebrity-filled comeback after allegations of racism and bribery within the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. We'll have a preview. Also ahead, a strong market signal for offshore wind in America. 
In sports, both the Bruins and Celtics have finished their road trips and returned to the Garden this week. The Celtics greet the Chicago Bulls tonight, 7.30 start time. Guard Marcus Smart will be out with an injury tonight. The Bruins get back to work on Thursday. A clear, chilly night overnight tonight, about 29 degrees for a low, gusty winds around. Tomorrow should be a lot like today. A little bit cooler, may not break 40, a good deal of sunshine. And then Wednesday, a mixture of clouds and sunshine could be uh, rainy as well later in the week. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family, and because of that understanding in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. If you would have asked me to guess how many ballots it would take before either McCarthy completely imploded or if he got the speaker's gavel, I would I would have given you a single digit number. I would never have guessed that we would have gotten to 14 or 15 votes that I would have had to cover. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. California is charging ahead with plans for floating wind turbines miles off its coastline. A federal lease auction took place last month, a first for the state. The future turbines will generate enough wind to power one and a half million homes. From member station KQED, Kevin Stark reports. California's coast, rocky bluffs running into green black water and a completely empty horizon. In the coming years, about 20 miles off the coast, the state plans for two clusters of wind turbines on floating platforms. For the Biden administration, it's a cornerstone of its ambitious climate plan. For Jeff Hunterlock, it means jobs for his members. Tens of thousands of jobs from construction phase to operation and maintenance and supply chains. Hunterlock is a union rep for the operating engineers in Northern California's Humboldt County. That's one of the auction areas for the offshore wind leases. California air regulators have charted an ambitious path to dramatically reduce planet warming gas emissions over the next two decades and spur job growth. And there is only one way to do that. That's the state's top air official, Leanne Randolph. Break forever our dependence on fossil fuels and move as fast as we can to a clean energy economy. California's goal is for 5 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2030. It's roughly equal to the energy output of eight natural gas power plants. Sam Eaton is an executive with RWE, one of the winning developers. The company has projects in the water all around the UK, Germany, and elsewhere. California's auction really put the U.S. right at the forefront of the leading floating markets in the world. Developers are investing tens of millions of dollars into training workers on the East Coast. I would expect that we will see a very similar paradigm come to bear on the West Coast. Stephanie McClellan runs the offshore wind nonprofit Turn Forward and has advised many states on offshore wind. California's sale generated $750 million last month. She says that strong signal shows developers are invested in the U.S. market. So when we have offshore wind developers in the offshore wind industry committed to the U.S. market, it means they're going to do more for the U.S. market. We're not just sort of a little outpost. RWE, Equinor Wind, and other big multinational energy companies won leases. These are established players. The leases are in good hands. 
But not everyone agrees. Frankie Myers, vice chair of the Yurok tribe, says RWE and other winners didn't consult with the tribe ahead of California's auction. We spoke over Zoom after the results. Developers spent around $150 million for individual leases. And the fact that they either recognized and didn't care or didn't care enough to recognize is extremely off-putting for our tribal government. Myers views offshore wind as the same as any other industry, looking at outcomes for the tribe. We're asking these developers to simply view us for what we are as sovereign nations. RWE's Eaton says he's committed to working with the Yurok tribe. Honestly, it was just a little too early for us to begin the conversation. Dick Og fishes for crab, albacore, black cod, and rockfish. We'll fish salmon from, you know, down by Morro Bay all the way up to, you know, Crescent City. He's been a fisherman for more than 20 years. On this day, Og is at a boatyard in Sausalito. I'm not opposed to any of this. I do have a lot of questions in mind. Questions like, where will they be able to fish? And how will the infrastructure impact the wild fishery? You're basically closing off a large area that maybe have been used for drag fishing, may have been used for long lining. The industry has urged federal and state regulatory agencies to slow down the development of offshore wind. Eaton says it will be the early 2030s before the first turbines spin off the state's northern coast. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Stark in San Francisco. And this story was produced through a collaboration between KQED in California and Climate Central. The Golden Globes are poised for a comeback on television Tuesday evening after two scandal-ridden years for the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. That is the organization that hosts the annual ceremony honoring film and TV. And as NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports, that 80-year-old organization is undergoing a makeover. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association plans to hand out awards with a lavish Hollywood party hosted by comedian Gerard Carmichael and with presenters such as Ana de Armas, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Quentin Tarantino. The biggest party in Hollywood is back. NBC will broadcast the Golden Globes, having ditched it last year. Many studios, networks, and stars boycotted the 2022 ceremony amid controversy over the HFPA's questionable practices and lack of diversity. The group was called out for conflicts of interest and bribery and for having very few black members. HFPA President Helen Hone says the group has since been overhauled. We adopted a new set of policies, eliminated a lot of the conflicts that we had. We implemented a new grievance procedure with a confidential reporting hotline. The HFPA added 21 diverse journalists, six of them black Americans, and 103 journalists representing 62 countries. All the members must now abide by a new code of conduct. It really took a crisis in order to allow this organization to evolve. Todd Boley, the new CEO, says the HFPA is also rebranding itself. It's evolving into two organizations, one which will be for-profit and one which will be the charitable arm, both which will be branded the Golden Globes. Boley says the for-profit Golden Globes organization will be more professional, paying journalists to create online content and podcasts, and they'll no longer hold exclusive press conferences, which were problematic. Some Hollywood insiders remain skeptical, pointing out, for instance, this year's Best Director category once again has no female nominees, but now some are cautiously hopeful. I'm optimistic about the road ahead and trust that the issues we faced historically are going to remain 
in the rearview mirror. Kelly Bush Novak is one of Hollywood's top publicists. Two years ago, she helped lead 100 publicity firms in signing a letter asking the HFPA to change. It was really problematic. We had clients experience homophobia during press conferences, blatantly racist remarks during press conferences, certainly a lot of sexist remarks. But I really do encourage everyone to concentrate on the promise that they've made to continue to reform. I am both surprised and not surprised by how quickly Hollywood seems to have forgiven the organization. Kevin Fallon is an editor at the Daily Beast and co-president of the TV branch of the Critics' Choice Association. He says the Golden Globes are now tarnished, and he wonders who will show up for what's traditionally been Hollywood's booziest awards party. Last year, Tom Cruise returned his awards in protest. This year, his movie Top Gun Maverick is up for Best Picture. Best Actor nominee Brendan Fraser says he will not attend the ceremony, having alleged the HFPA's former president once groped him. But on the red carpet, look for nominees such as Steven Spielberg, Austin Butler, and Jenna Ortega. There might be a little bit of a sheepishness in accepting a trophy. But at the same token, you know, of course, it's Hollywood and they can't resist going to an awards show, so maybe I shouldn't be surprised. Fallon notes that the Golden Globes are still a precursor to the Oscars. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News, Los Angeles. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks Dayquil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. This is NPR. Start your day with WBUR tomorrow morning. Among our stories, greener anesthesia. In the fight against climate change, Mass General Hospital wants anesthesiologists to use gases that emit less carbon dioxide during surgery. Ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. And the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum presenting Metal of Honor, showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the Renaissance and today. GardnerMuseum.org. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. More than 7,000 nurses are on strike at two of the largest hospitals in New York City. Negotiations have resumed. The nurses say they won't get back on the job until they get a fair contract. The dispute has already left critical patient care services in peril. Today is Monday, January 9th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Sunday's riot by supporters of Brazil's former president as parallels with what happened in the U.S. on January 6, 2021. But it's also part of a global far-right movement that's opposed to democracy. Prince Harry is having an eventful week with a book coming out and his appearance in a series of high-profile interviews about his marriage, strife within the royal family, and about losing his mother, Princess Diana. I just refused to accept that she was gone part of, you know, she would never do this to us, but also part of, maybe this is all part of a plan. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. After 15 ballots and four days of standoffs, Kevin McCarthy has taken control of the gavel as Speaker of the House. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, the chamber is set to take up vote on the rules package to start off the 118th Congress. In exchange for getting the necessary votes from a hard right group of holdouts, now Speaker McCarthy agreed to various rules changes, including a concession that allows just one lawmaker to offer a resolution to oust the Speaker. Some other changes, like giving 72 hours to read bills before votes, are widely supported by House Republicans. But some moderate members aren't a solid yes vote yet on the package over concerns that slashing discretionary spending could hurt the Pentagon. Republicans have just a four-seat majority, so McCarthy can't afford more than a few defections. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, Washington. The special grand jury investigating efforts to interfere with the 2020 election in Georgia has concluded its work. Today, a judge issued an order dissolving the panel and will next decide whether to make the final report public. WABE Sam Greenglass has more. A year ago, a judge convened a Fulton County special grand jury to investigate attempts by former President Donald Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election result in Georgia. The panel heard from witnesses, including one-time Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani and former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. The investigation was spurred by Trump's phone call to Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, asking him to, quote, find 11,780 votes. Raffensperger refused. Later this month, the judge overseeing the special grand jury will hold a hearing on whether to make the panel's final report public. If Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis decides to bring any charges, a grand jury would need to agree. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. After his collapse on the field a week ago, NFL player DeMar Hamlin is back in Buffalo. Nick Swartzell, the member station WVXU, has more. Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin has left the University of Cincinnati Medical Center and flown back to Buffalo, doctors announced in a briefing with reporters. Hamlin suffered cardiac arrest and collapsed after a tackle during a game against the Cincinnati Bengals last Monday. UC Health's Timothy Pritz says Hamlin's recovery has been faster than expected. Normal recovery from something like this is going to be measured in weeks to months. You know, he's been a little bit ahead of that at each, at each stage. Hamlin spent six days in intensive care, much of it on a breathing tube. Doctors say he began walking last Friday. Hamlin will continue to receive care at a hospital in Buffalo. For NPR News, I'm Nick Swartzell in Cincinnati. The state comptroller of New York is the latest to call on Southwest Airlines to explain its holiday meltdown that left thousands stranded and sent luggage around the country. Comptroller's office oversees New York's pension system, which currently holds around 1.3 million shares in Southwest. On Wall Street, the Dow was down today. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey has wrapped up her first meeting with state legislative leaders. This afternoon's meeting on policy priorities came less than a week after Healey took the oath of office. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. 
Healy met for a little over an hour with House Speaker Ron Mariano and Senate President Karen Spilka. The governor said they discussed a number of topics, including workforce, health care, the climate, and education, including her call to make community college free for anyone over the age of 25. And I think the work now begins with our teams as we've made it through what was a really terrific inauguration week. We'll begin the work of sitting down together with our teams to, to flesh out more details and to see what we can arrive at as we as we move forward in the coming months with respect to community college and education and issues generally. Spilka has called free community college a priority. Speaker Mariano was noncommittal to the idea, noting the devil is in the details. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Several hundred protesters at Cambridge City Hall today demanded justice over a shooting involving police in Cambridgeport last week. Investigators say an officer shot and killed 20-year-old college student Saeed Faisal after he charged the officer with a long knife and wouldn't drop the weapon. The Middlesex District Attorney's Office is investigating the use of police force. Relatives and friends of Faisal say he was nonviolent and never before had encounters with police. Cambridge City officials and the DA are holding public meetings over the next two weeks to talk about the shootings with the community. Cambridge-based biotech company Editas is slashing its workforce by about 20 percent. The cuts come as Editas abandons its work on drugs that treat tumors and eye diseases. The company will now focus on medications to combat sickle cell anemia and other blood disorders. It says it wants to pursue treatments that have the greatest possibility of commercial and regulatory success. And residents of a town about 20 miles west of Worcester have voted down a proposed racetrack. A developer and horse breeder wants to build the track and offer sports betting in Hardwick. Alden Bourne reports. The project required approval from the community. On Saturday, a little over 300 residents voted yes, while more than 800 said no. Robert Page is part of a group opposed to the racetrack, which went door-to-door in recent weeks. We worked very hard to help people understand and read through this very slick marketing campaign. And we read the host community agreement that was floated by these folks. And our local young people that live and work and farm here really showed up. A spokesperson for Commonwealth Racing, the organization behind the project, says he and his colleagues are disappointed by the vote and need to regroup and refocus their efforts. He left the door open for another racetrack proposal in Hardwick in the future. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. Hang on to your hat tonight. It's likely to be windy, a little bit below freezing. Tomorrow still breezy, a little bit chillier than today has been. Down around 39 degrees tomorrow, still on the sunny side. A few clouds accompany the sunshine on Wednesday, then maybe showers moving in on Thursday. It's 6.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In scenes eerily reminiscent of January 6th, thousands of protesters stormed Brazil's Capitol buildings this past weekend. The rioters were supporters of Jair Bolsonaro, the far-right former president who, like Donald Trump, falsely claimed that the election that ousted him was rigged. This weekend's attacks were also part of a broader pattern of transnational extremism, one where social media and a shared sense of grievance are playing big roles. For more on that, we are joined by NPR's Sergio Olmos, who covers extremism, and Shannon Bond, who covers how false claims spread online. Hi there. Welcome to you both. 
Hey. Hi, Mary Louise. Sergio, you first. As I watched the videos streaming in from Brazil over the weekend, they were so reminiscent of what we saw here in Washington on January 6th. Are they, in fact, linked, part of some kind of broader movement? Yeah, in many ways, it is part of a broader movement. Far-right movements globally are taking inspiration from each other. So even though this was in Brazil, we saw some of the figures connected to the January 6th insurrection cheering this on. Uh, the founder of the Stop the Steal movement, Ali Alexander, posted his support. He said that the Brazilian Supreme Court was illegitimate, saying, quote, do whatever is necessary. Uh, Steve Bannon, on his podcast since October, has been hosting guests who've been promoting election fraud conspiracies. On Sunday, he called the people that stormed Congress there, quote, Brazilian freedom fighters. Steve Bannon, uh, former President Trump's former advisor. Go on. Yeah, that's right. And it, it shows how the far right is an anti-democratic movement and it's transnational. What we saw on January 6th in the U.S. and Sunday in Brazil. Brazil uh, was not an anomaly, but part of a part of trend. Uh, these movements are sharing thoughts, ideas, strategies, and they're taking inspiration from each other. Well, and how deep does it go? Is it a two-way street in terms of far-right figures in the U.S. actively engaging with what's happening in Brazil? Yeah. So the far right hasn't necessarily developed an interest in Brazilian politics or necessarily care what happens there. Their interest is in the breakup of a globalized community. Uh, for that, I talked to Sergio Guzman, who monitors political climates in Latin America. He says these far right movements share a common goal in undermining democracy. Uh, let's listen in. They don't like organizations that express a common good or a common sense of what a democracy is and how it should behave. And so in a way, these groups find kindred spirits uh, in other countries who want the same objectives as them, which is to leave them alone. Shannon Bond, jump in here, because I have been so curious about the role of social media in the Sunday attack in Brazil. What do we know? Yeah, I mean, again, very much like we saw on January 6th, you know, these events, these riots were stoked and then documented on social media in messaging apps like Telegram and WhatsApp, which are very popular in Brazil, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok. You know, we initially saw people urging others to come to the Capitol and then spreading videos of the chaos as it unfolded. And what I found really interesting, Mary Louise, is so much of this organizing appeared to happen quite openly. Um, we saw this term Selma's party in Portuguese going around. That was apparently an attempt to evade detection by the companies and authorities. Selma is a play on the word selva, which is a term associated with Brazil's military. Huh. The Brazilian fact-checking group, group Lupa commissioned a survey of public WhatsApp groups about Brazilian politics. They found that expression first emerged in late December and then peaked last week. You know, we saw other ways they were trying to evade detection, posts talking about making cake for a party, as well as offers of free rides to Brasilia and promises of free food, free water. And that clearly mobilized many people to act on Sunday. Okay, so efforts among people posting to evade detection. On the other hand, you just said they were they were pretty open about all the yeah. planning. So is it is it surprising that authorities seem to have been caught by surprise? I mean, look, the alarm bells have been ringing. Researchers and observers have been warning something like this could happen, you know, well before the presidential election in October. You know, as you said, during Bolsonaro's campaign, he claimed election fraud was likely. That was amplified by far-right influencers in Brazil and, as Sergio mentioned, election deniers here in the U.S. who have explicitly evoked stop the steal. And those messages spread like wildfire on social media, even though Brazil's government has tried to crack down on false election claims and and, you know, has the power to force social networks to take down posts, to ban election deniers. 
In fact, on Sunday night, Brazil's Supreme Court issued an order calling on the social networks to block 17 accounts they say were linked to these attacks. Hmm. Okay, so that's what Brazil and its Supreme Court are doing. What about the social networks themselves? How are they responding to what happened over the weekend? Well, I reached out YouTube, Twitter, and Meta, which owns Facebook and WhatsApp. They say they're removing content that breaks their rules, including against inciting violence and praising the riots. Meta and Twitter also say they are in touch with Brazilian authorities about their investigations. On the other hand, Telegram and TikTok didn't respond to my questions. And so I think there's a lot of, you know, a lack of clarity we have on just what exactly the companies are doing and how effective it is. Okay. I have a question, I guess, to both of you, because as we know, concerns about global anti-democratic movements are not new, have been around a long time. I wonder whether you believe what we're seeing now marks an escalation. And if so, what, what are the larger lessons that you're taking away so far? Shannon, you start. Yeah, I mean, I think you know through the lens of seeing how social media is just so inextricably linked to these events, whether it's January 6th here in the U.S. or, or what's happened in Brazil, you know, I think these companies face a challenge. And one of the challenges is how much these posts and videos and calls to violence spread across platforms. They are not limited to one place, right? So Telegram posts get shared into WhatsApp. They get shared to Facebook. TikTok videos wind up on Twitter. And of course, then there is the mainstream media as well that plays a role. And it all creates a cycle of amplification that is very hard for any single company to tackle. And to me, that shows that there are real limits of what you know we can expect from Silicon Valley when what we're really dealing with is this political movement, you know, that does not accept a candidate's loss that is, as, as Sergio says, sort of fundamentally anti-democratic and rooted in extremism. Sergio. Yeah, I totally agree with Shannon. She this isn't is larger than just social media moderation or even individual figures like Donald Trump or Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, the the term far right extremism itself conveys perhaps an idea that this is just one end of the bell curve and we'll return to the mean that what we saw on January 6 or Sunday in Brazil was perhaps a flash in the pan of people briefly radicalized by looking at Facebook too often, but that's not what we're seeing. Uh, just last month in Europe, Germany, for example, had their largest anti-terror crackdown in history involving a far-right group plotting to storm their par the parliament there. It shows that democracies everywhere are in a kind of existential crisis, each of them grappling individually with their own far-right movements that are fundamentally anti-democratic. NPR Sergio Olmos, thank you. Thank you. And Shannon Bond, thanks to you too. You bet. Thousands of nurses began striking today at two of New York City's biggest hospitals, Montefiore Medical Center and Mount Sinai Hospital. The strikes have already disrupted patient care, but nurses say they won't return to work until they get a fair contract. We're now going to speak with Caroline Lewis, a healthcare reporter at WNYC. Hi, Caroline. Hi. So, Caroline, what are nurses at these hospitals fighting for? Um, well, you know, pay increases and health benefits are both on the table. But the biggest sticking point here and what nurses say is most important is better staffing. Um, so both of these hospitals are offering salary increases of nearly 20% over three years. And that's similar to what other New York City hospitals have offered um, that have managed to reach contract deals and avoid a strike in recent days. Um, but the nurses union says that these remaining hospitals have so far refused to commit to the concrete nurse to patient staffing ratios that they're asking for. Um, and so that's really what's holding up these talks. So these staffing issues that we're talking about here, are they new? Or are these a consequence of the pandemic or are these existing issues? 
Well, I think understaffing has been a chronic issue at some hospitals, and nurses have long talked about how that can endanger patient care. Um, but these challenges have definitely been exacerbated by the pandemic. A lot of nurses have left the profession altogether or have left their hospitals in favor of more lucrative travel or temporary nursing positions. And hospitals now have to compete with those wages when they're trying to recruit and retain permanent nurses. Um, and they're, you know, you know, as it stands, there's currently hundreds of unfilled nursing positions at both Montefiore and Mount Sinai. When I hear you say hundreds of unfilled nursing positions, it makes me wonder how patient care has been impacted by these strikes. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, you know, both of these hospitals, um, you know, are bringing in temporary workers during the strikes, which, you know, can be very expensive. Um, but there's still a big disruption to patient care. You know, both of these hospitals um, began postponing elective surgeries um, in the days leading up to the strikes and began discharging as many patients as they could or, you know, transferring patients. Um, Mount Sinai uh, said that it was transferring its uh, neonatal intensive care unit, you know, patients so like newborns to other facilities to keep them safe. Montefiore said it was rescheduling outpatient visits. Um, so, you know, there there is a big disruption. And the city has said that it's working to reroute ambulances so that they take patients to other hospitals. And Caroline, where did talk stand now? Is there an end in sight? Um, well, as of midday today, uh, talks were in progress at Montefiore, but they were stalled at Mount Sinai. Um, you know, Mount Sinai had said that the nurses union left the negotiating table late last night um, and the talks still have not resumed. Um, but nurses on the picket line seemed energized. You know, they said they were sad that it had come to this, but thought it was necessary to protect patients in the long run. Healthcare reporter Caroline Lewis of WNYC. Caroline, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Marketplace starts at 6.30. Coming up this evening, the Federal Trade Commission has proposed a ban on non-compete clauses. We'll take a look at how that could affect opportunities and pay for workers across the country. Again, Marketplace starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, offering farm-to-table meals to go from their kitchen. See Sunday supper menus and more at volantefarms.com. It was a mixed showing on Wall Street today. The Dow lost about a third of a percent, 113 points. It closed at 33,518. S&P dipped less than a tenth of a percent to end the day at 38.92. The Nasdaq notched a second day of gains, up six-tenths of a percent to finish at 10,636. A Boston-based insurance software company is being acquired by a private equity firm. Duck Creek Technologies is selling to Vista Equity Partners for about $2.5 billion. The deal may be completed in the spring. Shares of Duck Creek rose 46% today in the wake of the news. It's 620. 
Funding for WBUR's Business Report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. We've got a waning moon tonight. Clear skies should be a little bit below freezing tonight. Then for tomorrow, sun's back. So is the breeze, about 39 degrees for a high. Then for Wednesday, partly sunny skies, some fair weather clouds in. Highs in the 30s once again. Temperatures should pick up with the rain possibly coming down toward the end of the week. 37 degrees now in Boston. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The Iranian government carried out two executions over the weekend, prompting more international condemnations over its attempt to crush several months of anti-government protests. But as NPR's Peter Kenyon reports, Iranians are determined to be heard despite the ongoing crackdown and official attempts to cut off internet access. The two men who were hanged this weekend took the number of known executions to four. Dozens of other people also face possible death penalties. Iran's hardline government calls the demonstrators rioters armed by Iran's enemies. Some 500 people, according to rights groups, have been killed by security forces on the streets. But protesters vow they'll go on. Like others contacted via the internet for this story, Javad, in his 50s and from central Iran, asked that his family name not be used for fear of retribution for speaking out against the government and talking to foreign media. But he's been protesting ever since the death of a 22-year-old woman in the custody of the morality police sparked the unrest in September. He says forced by the government won't stop him. We saw that the government didn't budge at all, didn't acknowledge any of the demands. So people have gotten angrier and angrier. Although recently there are fewer street protests due to the crackdowns, in the coming year there are certainly going to be more. You can see signs of this rage in the society. Javad does see one way the protesters could strengthen their hand. He says there needs to be more of a connection between the demonstrators inside Iran and members of the large Iranian diaspora around the world, who would also love to see the government in Tehran fall. Without that cooperation, he says, quote, people will find it difficult to trust the opposition. Arman, another demonstrator who's in his 30s and from Tehran, says he wouldn't be surprised to see what he calls another explosive wave of protests, especially if the government crackdowns get worse. There is absolutely no end to the will of the government for intensifying its violence. The sole obstacle that has hindered the security forces is how widespread the protests are compared with the weakness of the crackdown machine. Many security forces refuse to beat people in their own towns and cities. So the government has to constantly move them from one city to another so they can continue to suppress protests. As for what world powers can or should do, Armand says the protesters ask only that they live up to their commitment to the principles of democracy and human rights. Today's world claims it has learned multiple lessons from ignoring the crimes of different dictators in the past. Those must be kept in mind and remembered when facing one of the most appalling fundamentalist dictatorships in world history especially at a time when the world has been observing how an entirely democratic and liberal movement is fighting against them inside the country.
Analyst Ali Vaez at the International Crisis Group says he sees Iran today in a similar place to where the former Soviet Union was, not in the late 1980s when it was on the verge of collapse, but in the early 1980s. Early 1980s in the sense that it's a system that is ideologically bankrupt, uh, economically broken, uh, at a political dead end as sim- and simply unable to address its problems with the same cast of characters who created uh, this deadlock to begin with. But Vyas also says while the protesters are calling for something many Iranians would like to see, the toppling of the government, only a minority is willing to take to the streets and risk their liberty or their lives to demand it. As long as the protests don't reach what he calls critical mass, he says the regime is unlikely to fracture or lose its willingness to repress demonstrations by force. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Prince Harry is speaking out in a series of high-profile interviews to preview his new memoir. It's out tomorrow, and it is titled Spare. In an interview with CBS's 60 Minutes, which aired yesterday, Harry talked about his mother, Princess Diana, who died in a car crash in 1997. He admitted that for years he didn't believe she was actually dead. I just refused to accept that she was gone. Part of, you know, she would never do this to us, but also part of maybe this is all part of a plan. I mean, you you really believe that maybe she had just decided to disappear for a time. For a time, and then that she would call us and we would go and join her. Well, here to talk about the impact of these interviews is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Hey, Eric. Hi. All right, so tell me more about all these interviews. This is a media blitz. Who's he talking to? What's he saying? Well, there's the 60 Minutes interview with Anderson Cooper, which you heard. And he's also taped an interview with Michael Strahan, which aired on Good Morning America and is featured in a half-hour special tonight. Uh, He's also done a British TV interview, and in all of them, he's talked about why he and his wife, Meghan Markle, have become alienated from the royal family. There's strife in particular with his brother, Prince William, and how the royal family's alliance with the press led to this caustic coverage of Meghan that was both racist and it also drove a wedge between him and his brother, William. So Harry told Good Morning America that unconscious bias against Meghan, who's biracial, affected both the royal family and the press not racism, Mm -hmm. but unconscious bias, if not confronted, if not learned and grown from, that that can then move into racism. But there was an enormous missed opportunity with my wife. And Eric, he has talked before in in previous interviews about the tensions between his wife and the royal family. Was there anything new here, anything we didn't already know? If you follow the royal family closely, there might not have been many surprises, but Harry provides new details on how his father, who was then Prince Charles, told him about Diana's death, how he suspects that his stepmother, Camilla, leaked stories to the press to improve her image at his expense, and this physical altercation where he says that his brother, William, attacked him while they were arguing over Meghan. Now, he was paid millions for this book, and he's got a production deal with Netflix, so there is some pressure for him to come up with some attention-getting Huh. That's interesting. Stay with that for a second, because Harry himself has talked about the concerns he has about feeding the beast 
of gossip coverage. With that in mind, why is there so much interest in what he's saying? Should we be so interested in this? I, I know. I mean, even a segment like this, right? I mean, I think ultimately what fascinates people about Harry and Meghan's story and TV shows like Netflix's The Crown is there's a chance to see a less filtered version of how the royal family operates. Now, Harry's interviews are remarkable in that they feature a member of the royal family doing something they almost never do, which is to speak candidly about these conflicts trauma and the sorrow inside the family. What has Buckingham Palace had to say about these revelations? Well, not much. I mean, Anderson Cooper said that representatives for the royal family wanted to see the 60-minute story before it was broadcast, which CBS News never does. And Michael Strahan said this morning that lawyers for Buckingham Palace asked them while they were on the air for a copy of the entire interview, which ABC News also doesn't do. So they seem to be trying to avoid looking like they're stonewalling. Big picture, what is the impact? likely to be from these revelations? Well, I saw the journalist Michael Wolf said something really interesting, saying that America mostly likes what Harry and Meghan are doing because they see it as them speaking their truth, while many British people might hate it or fans of the royalty might hate it because they think the couple's being disloyal. I do think that Harry and Meghan have been able to humanize themselves a bit. And one of Harry's points is that the royal family has this alliance with newspapers where they'll refuse to comment on the record and then they secretly leak this information to push back. He says he's trying to disrupt that pattern by speaking his piece on the record in public. Yeah, and again, his memoir out tomorrow. That is NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Bruins and the Celtics have both finished their road trips and returned to the Garden this week. Celtics greet the Chicago Bulls tonight, 7.30 start time. Guard Marcus Smart will be out with an injury. The Bruins get back to work on Thursday. Nice night ahead. Clear skies tonight, a cold wind down around 29 degrees. Tomorrow, mostly sunny again in the upper 30s for high. 37 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Whitehead Institute. Join director Ruth Lehman on January 26th in conversation with science writer Carl Zimmer. wi.mit.edu events.